0: Our next guest, many of you might be familiar with his blog. Uh, it's a very popular one, actually. But uh, he's Professor James F. Tracy. And uh, his bio, according to his bio, he's a media scholar, uh, an educator, a political analyst. And he is currently residing in South Florida. And he's received his Ph.D. from the University of Iowa. He's a Hawkeye from 2002. And his work on media and history and politics has appeared through a wide variety of academic journals, edited volumes, and other alternative news and opinion outlets globally, and his name is James Tracy. James, thank you so much for joining us this week at the Sunday Wire.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Now, the, the reason I've contacted you, James, and um, uh, one of our uh, producers, Sean, uh, was very Keen to uh, get you on the show as I was too is because of what's going on right now in the news um, now I've, I am familiar and many of others are some of your uh, work analyzing and looking at uh, for starters some of the anomalies in mass shootings and sort of domestic terror events so-called terror events like the Boston bombings and also the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, and there is one shooting which happened not long ago. I know this is an eternity for American media, but it was eight days ago, nine <laughs> days ago. It was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I know this is ancient history for the media, and I'm sorry to have to go back in a time machine to, to, to analyze this, but we filed a report, which I did with Jay Dyer, um, a couple of days ago on Chattanooga. It's called Trouble in the Homeland. And I thought I would get you on to talk about this, but I saw your post, uh, which I actually saw from your blog, but it ended up on globalresearch.ca, which is a really good website. And, uh, you're really challenging, uh, some of the sort of connections here with Chattanooga. And, uh, so we included part of what you said in our, uh, in our report here, but there's so much, um, with this particular shooting. This is, this shooting is like a smorgasbord of, of, in my opinion, a smorgasbord of staging, media staging, disinformation, um, rampant speculation on the part of the media. Uh, but there's also a lot of deep state agendas here at play that a lot of people are not aware of that we I would like to crack into here. So, I don't know, uh, if you can just start and tell us um a little bit about yourself, how you sort of came to prominence in this particular subject area, but also, um, you know, the criticism that you've received too and, you know, has this affected your your career in academia, for instance, because I know it's not very popular uh, to take a public stand on these sort of issues.
1: Well, thank you, Patrick. I guess I never really intended to take a public stand per se. I had been um, uh, blogging on a variety of matters, frequently historical matters, things like uh, Operation Gladio and 9/11 from early 2012, and I had submitted a number of my articles to Global Research and Michelle Shazodowski, the editor over there, was was nice enough to post a number of those. Many of them got uh, quite a bit of, of circulation uh, from that site and then others being picked up by other sites. And in uh, late 2012, early 2013, when Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook Massacre took place on December 14th of 2012, I really didn't uh, sit up and take a great deal of attention. It wasn't until several days later. But I began looking at the event more closely, the news coverage of the event, and um, and asking questions myself. And I wrote uh, a handful of articles, some of which were rather detailed, and uh, most of those appeared over on Global Research as well and there was one that i wrote i think on december 24th it was 10 days after the event that got a great deal of attention it was uh... i believe uh, anomalies and missing information concerning sandy hook and that is the one i think that probably caused me the most grief uh, shortly thereafter i had a telephone call from the regional newspaper here the sun sentinel and They, the reporter uh, michael uh, clary Interviewed me and then uh, posted the uh, article. The article itself was really rather derogatory and framed me as kind of this conspiracy theorist professor, and that frame persisted in the media uh, throughout early throughout January of 2013. And uh, unfortunately, I got I guess really a, uh, a very intimate example of what I study on a regular basis, which is the fast media, but being the focus of this. And unfortunately, the major media, the corporate media, did not look critically and assess my argument and what I was saying concerning Sandy Hook and the questions that I was raising. Rather, it became kind of like Gary Webb. If you think about that case, it became more about me about what I was actually asserting and what I was suggesting concerning the various anomalies of that event. And so um, throughout early 2013, the first months of 2013, uh, I had a back and forth with my employer, uh, the university here, and I think that there was... An objective—I don't know how coordinated it was—but there appeared to be an objective uh, by some of the major media, including uh, CNN, to have me uh, to have me terminated. Uh, this was more or less the thrust of the coverage that I was getting by Anderson Cooper on successive evenings in early 2013, and uh, so it was really that rather unnerving uh, at that point in time. Uh, and then, in April, I chose to write a few pieces on the Boston Marathon bombing, which I thought was there were a number of questions there as well that needed to be asked that the major media were not asking, and even some of the alternative media unfortunately, I think really dropped the ball uh, on that particular event, which I think was a drill, and I'm inclined to think that Sandy Hook was as well in fact. More of the evidence that I look at now, uh, confirms uh, my initial concerns and suspicions about those events rather than calls those into question. And, you know, this is a couple of years later. But I did uh, choose to write on the Boston bombing and I had already been formally disciplined by the university. Uh, this was something that was contested by various uh, civil rights organizations, the American Association of University Professors, arguing that I had a right to free speech. But um, what was overlooked in that whole exchange was that I'm also a media critic, and this is something that I do for a living and it's something that I've been trained to do. And even though it's controversial and the major corporate media don't agree with what I have to say and wish I would shut up, I still have a right to say it. And this is arguably tortious interference on behalf of my employer, keeping me from doing what I normally do as a uh, as an academic, as a professor, what I do in the classroom, what I do in my my writing, my scholarly research, and my extracurricular research and, and journalism and commentary. So. Um, In uh, September of 2013, the uh, case was settled, and the university withdrew its disciplinary uh, measure against me, which is a letter in my personnel file in exchange for me not mentioning the name of the university on my blog or on any other writing that I do and and blogging, which I make it a point not to do because this is a a legal and binding uh, agreement. So that, in a nutshell, is as um, what my my commentary and uh, my writing uh, formally outside uh, off campus has uh, has has um, has led to.
0: Wow! So that's uh, that's that's quite an experience, um, qu- quite a, a thing to go through uh, professionally, and really all your. You're doing as a professor, I mean, your job as an academic really, if I'm not mistaken here, is to impart on your students, uh, some critical thinking skills first and foremost, especially in the, in the area that you're teaching. I would say that's, that's pretty high up on the list, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and to be chastised, disciplined, or, you know, terminated, uh, for doing that in your own analysis of real events, Uh, that are happening out there in the world, uh, then that is is quite mind-boggling, really. Well, there
1: there were a number of other kind of things that were done to me informally in the form of harassment uh, by the administration that uh, it's really not worth going into at any length. But this was just not formal disciplinary measures, but there are also other things. Uh, that were attempted, and it was done more or less to intimidate me and uh, keep me from, from writing and uh, being involved in alternative media, which I've, I've been doing for the past three years now.
0: Yeah, so, so we're talking, let's, let's rewind a little bit. We're talking about drills. Now, I'm inclined to believe uh, that there are aspects of this shooting. I'd le- I want to do a little comparative analysis here because uh, we have quite a few events that are well-documented, that we can bounce back and forth off each other now you're talking about drills I'm I'm inclined to believe that this Chattanooga shooting definitely has shown us aspects of potentially uh, some kind of a staged um, event if not a drill itself uh, and I pointed out a number of things immediately from this was that there are two separate events in Chattanooga there was a shooting at a marine recruitment office in a strip mall and seven and a half miles away at a naval reserve center is where the actual, were told the actual victims of the gunmen, um, were, were killed. And so nothing was done really at the strip mall than a hail of bullets and glass. And yet the media coverage for the first 48 hours, which I thought was interesting. I'd, I'd like yourself. I really look at how the media is, where they're looking, where they're focusing, because I know that. That's the sort of in terms of the overall messaging or the objective is going to be achieved through or by media coverage. They're focused on the strip mall. And I got most people thought that the Marines were shot in a recruitment office in a strip mall. But that isn't what happened. And, of course, 48 hours later, they start focusing more on this site number two, which is a naval uh, reserve training facility uh, in Chattanooga. And what I'm looking at now, looking at the investigation, it's completely mothballed by uh, NCIS so naval crime scene uh, investigative services uh controlling the scene then you have the within the department of defense that's closed the FBI have an overarching responsibility of federal over the investigation there's no civilians involved there's no law enforcement local law enforcement involved at all all information's being drip fed by the department of justice to the major media outlets like CNN Fox etc and that to me is what i call a closed information system so if you are running a drill <laughs> uh like this has definitely shows aspects of a drill a rented car uh and all sorts of other strange anomalies Will we see the ballistic reports? I don't know. Will they be able to verify the story they've given us matches up with all the ballistic reports? Who was with this uh, young man, Abdulaziz, when he rented the car? Did he buy insurance? These are all important questions uh, in terms of the story. So will we get answers for any of this? It's classified. It will be classified under some kind of national security letter uh, or the DOD. Or the DOJ. So that, to me, is where a lot of the problems begin from where I'm looking at, is it's lack of transparency. And is, is this the case with Sandy Hook in Boston as well? I believe that huge parts of these two cases are classified.
1: Yeah, that's right. And whenever you have federal agencies get involved, uh, in particular with regard to Chattanooga, because this is something that allegedly took place on a military base. And so you have, as you suggest, layer upon layer of bureaucratic uh, and legal protection uh, from the government, or excuse me, from reporters that the government has. It's able to insulate itself. And uh, the, for example, yourself and other alternative journalists are doing what the major media should, in fact, be doing is asking these types of, of questions. But their overall coverage is just simply uh, cursory, and uh, they don't even ask, for example, why the um, there was the suggestion that the shooting and, and injuries or fatalities took place at their recruitment center rather than at the military base, which is what, you know, we are now led to believe actually uh, t- took place. But, you know, there are historical precedents to this. If we look at, say, the Oklahoma City bombing, which certainly did, in fact, take place, uh, within the course of 24 hours, you had federal agencies swooping in, and largely controlling what the media narrative was. So the discussion of additional ordnance in the building is something that was kind of, it was more or less uh, erased from the from the picture, if you will, and uh, it was no longer questioned. And then it became, oh, well, that was misreporting early on as in, 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 in that event transpired. But with that event, Within the course of the first several hours, maybe up to 12 hours, 18 hours, there really was very good reportage that was being uh, provided by the local affiliates there, uh, by the print news media, and again, that all changed when you had uh, the feds come in and really take things over. And uh, with regard to Sandy Hook, this was also more or less the case. It was the case with, uh, with Boston. Where you, uh, you you have the uh, the federal agencies come in and they take over or to, they are, are a large presence at the uh, the press conferences and so uh, they're able to once again control the, the narrative in terms of uh, in terms of the information that is presented. Uh, and the information that is that is not provided. Now, there are some contrasts as well with regard to some of these events that are taking place today. Uh, we should really question things like Sandy Hook and Boston and Chattanooga as well as Charleston uh, or Lafayette because we can't be certain that these events are actually real or, or, or constructed. Now, there's no doubt that 9-11 took place. There's no doubt that Oklahoma City took place. But – these recent mass shootings are um are really they they open up a whole lot a whole series of questions and you begin to ask questions <laughs> there are more questions one of the things i've been looking at recently uh is the a tendency for these mass shootings to take place towards the weekend towards the ebb of the news cycle so if you look at um the major mass shootings that have taken place since fort hood and including fort hood in november of 2009 they've all taken place on thursday through sunday without well a couple took place on on wednesday the spring texas shooting and the, the uh charlotte uh, church shooting late wednesday so it became part of the news cycle on thursday but all of the other shootings took place either on a Saturday or Sunday or on, on a Thursday or Friday. Five took place on Thursday. This was Fort Hood, the Florida State shooting, uh, the Seattle Pacific shooting, the Chattanooga shooting, and the Lafayette shooting. Uh, four took place on, on Friday. The Norway attacks, now granted that's overseas, uh, so that might be a bit of an, an anomaly, but the Aurora Theater shooting, uh, the Sandy Hook uh, massacre, and the Isle of Vista killings. Now, I bring this up because I think that with these events, there is the anticipation of the news cycle itself and public temperament concerning how the narrative is going to be constructed and how it will play out if, in fact, these things are drills and they're being constructed more or less as narratives. Because when you go into, and as you know, you work in news as well, so you're going into the weekend and there's an ebb in the news cycle. Uh, the public broadly has its, its guard down to a certain degree. Again, you know, going into a Saturday or Sunday, Saturday and Sunday. And so um, they are able to create the narrative and transition very quickly from the event to the morning. And so there's no real questioning that takes place, Uh, whereas if, for example, these events took place, say, early on in the week, in the weekly news cycle, say on a Monday or, or Tuesday. And so before you know it, you've got people holding candles, and flowers, and they're, you know, they're talking about, oh, we, we want to, uh, as in Charlotte, for example, it was uh, the mantra more or less is, you know, love is stronger than hate, and we're forgiving, and so there's n- not as much of a concentration in terms of the 24-hour news cycle, uh, and even the print news media, there's not as much of a concentration on the event itself, and the dynamics of the event, and what really happened. Versus the the uh, uh, empathizing with and identifying with the survivors and the uh, the the family victims or al- the alleged family victims uh, of the event, right? So, I, I in my view, and some of this, granted, is speculative. We can't help but be, to a certain degree, speculative because. Um, the, the those who are designing these events are, of course, not going to come out and say, oh, yeah, it's something that we, you know, it's largely, it, it, it's, it's largely a setup. It's largely contrived. We have to read into things, and we have to interpret things. And um, I, I am of the mind that this is not coincidental. The, the fact that these events are timed for the latter part of the week uh, anticipates how the narrative is going to be developed and how it will play out, and before you know it, come the next week, there's something else that takes up the public attention. Right? We had uh, we had Charlotte, uh, Chattanooga, and then within the course of the next week, in fact, the following week to the day, there's Lafayette, and so that takes up the, that takes up the news cycle that dominates the news cycle, the interviews and, and everything of the like, and Chattanooga all of a sudden is history. You've got people like yourself who are asking questions and looking into it closely, but the media, the major media have moved on. So those are just some observations with regard to what we're looking at uh, and and, uh, things to perhaps consider.
0: No, you're absolutely correct on on terms of the uh, news cycle. It's not just a 24-hour news cycle. Then you've also commented there Quite accurately on the, the weekly news cycle. And there's a sw- there's two sweet spots uh, with regards to and and all the media, all journalists, all uh, producers, they, they, they do aim if they really want to maximize ratings, um, you know, pull in the ad revenues. Um, they're looking at these two sweet spots. And one of them, of course, is Sunday evening until Tuesday morning. And that sort of 48 hours there, roughly 48 hours. Um, that's a sweet spot there because you get people on Monday and, uh, then it'll, if it's big enough, it'll have enough momentum and inertia that'll make it all the way to Friday. The other sweet spot is Thursday, Thursday afternoon, Thursday uh, evening. And that will roll you strong through Friday. And like you said, once uh, Friday evening rolls around, uh, you do lose the attention of quite a bit of the population for obvious reasons into the weekend. So the, the, there are these sweet spots that, that, and definitely if these shootings are happening, falling on these times, it is indicative um, that there's uh, a bigger design at play. Now, as far as you mentioned Charleston, now when that shooting happened, and I saw that uh, a state senator, St- state senator Pickney, sitting, uh, public official was killed in there and they didn't make a big a very big deal about this and i thought straight away because i am in my sort of crime crime solving mode i thought hit i thought this is a hit this is a hit and he's the he's the target of the hit and everything else is just theater staging basically Mm -hmm. and um that so me as a I, I go on my intuition a lot. So, as a detective, if I was a, if I was a detective, I would rely heavily on my intuition because I found in most most places in life, uh, my intuition's been correct on, on many occasions. And, and so, it's one of your best tools uh, as an investigator or an analyst. You do have to go a little bit with your intuition. I thought that's a hit. A uh, state senator, Pickney, was assassinated, and everything else was set up to create some sort of spectacle. That's, that was my intuition when I saw that crime. Uh, but, and I was so disappointed that, um, that I didn't, wasn't hearing more about the state senator. It was almost like he was just, he might as well have been the ice cream man. You know, he might as well have been Joe the plumber. I mean, he just happened to be there, a state senator. No, you know, whatever. And he's also very influential in the community. I don't know what fingers he had his pies or which pies he had his fingers in, but I, I would say that he's, uh, a pretty pivotal character in this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, I don't know what your thoughts were there.
1: Well, that uh, event is something that is um, very complex in a socio cultural sense as well, not only in terms of its politics, but there's the whole elements of of race. Oh, yeah. There is the elements of the the country's misunderstood history, in terms of the civil war and the confederacy that has culminated in now taking down confederate flags and unfortunately many americans really don't understand or comprehend that whole episode of history and they they see it solely through the lens of race and um one of the first revelations that came to me concerning Charleston, aside from those things, because the Southern Poverty Law Center was immediately on the scene, you have to be suspicious whenever they are involved. Same with, like, the site intelligence groups. These are, uh, these are intelligence assets and, and operatives, more or less. They can't really be trusted. Uh, and, and it's amazing that the major media, well, I suppose not. It's not so much amazing, but but they do not really scrutinize these groups before uh, before taking hook, line, and sinker what they have to say and, and putting it on the printed page or in their news reports. Uh, there was a, as, as you likely know, concerning Charleston, there was a drill that was taking place overseen by the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which is a division of the Department of Homeland Security uh, in Charleston between um, June 15th and 19th. So that encompasses june 17th so mm-hmm. it's fairly easy to uh to incorporate um a media event into the drill or present it as as something whereby this massacre uh actually took place there's the fact that the church itself which is at that time a, a it was a site of a crime scene of a extremely a profoundly violent uh, you know, event, was open within the course of, of three to four days.
0: Yeah, that was strange.
1: Uh, you have the, the interviewees who, like Sandy Hook, really don't exhibit any grief. Now, I know that that might, again, sound somewhat speculative, but it, it's not just one or two people that don't. It's uniform, It's it, almost uniform. Uh, in terms of their reactions, the fact that they are they want to forgive and uh, that they you know they 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 want to embrace uh, Dylan Roof and and what have you, it it really just doesn't make a great deal of sense. Anyone who's lost a loved one in a very tragic event in a very abrupt sort of way realizes how traumatic that actually is, and that's something that. I would say with nine out of ten people is exhibited in their facial countenance and the way in which they comport themselves. Uh, so if you're able to read people, you can more or less tell that these these interviews are uh, appear to be contrived, not all of them but uh, a number of them, uh, where you have individuals that are really more or less reciting lines. In some cases, they're reciting lines in more than one scene, you know, in front of more, in front of two or three sets of microphones, there is also the fact that the Obama administration um, rushed twenty-nine million dollars to the victims' families just within forty-eight hours of, of the event taking place. Wow! Now that's uh, three point two million dollars per family. Now. We have no idea. Again, we we have to speculate to a certain degree. But what are the strings attached to this money that's being uh, doled out? Uh, are there non-disclosure agreements with the family members, like there were with some of the the, the surviving family members of, say, nine eleven? Uh, we have no idea. Of course, if it's a non-disclosure agreement, there's no way that we're going to know. Uh, but there are all these kinds of things that we need to take into consideration. That that really um, um, raised some red flags for me, the $29 million. And, of course, speaking of the news cycle, that was that was announced, but it was on Friday afternoon. Uh, you know the government mm-hmm. releases information and news on Friday afternoon when they want for it to, to die. And um, I think that's one of the reasons that that was announced at that time.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a huge red flag. I mean, the speed. I mean, when is when is that much money ever been allocated? I mean, you'd be hard pressed to get anything out of the government. You know, to, to look at some of the other past disasters. I mean, nine eleven, or the BP oil spill in the Gulf. By the by the way, both of those compensation funds are managed by the same guy. I forgot his name is Feingold. I can't remember his. uh He's an attorney from New York, but um, you know they, they haven't paid out anything, nor will they pay out anything um, with regards to the uh, Gulf of Mexico spill. But it takes years, and f- to do that in forty-eight hours to me is mind-blowing. Um, that that's a uh, definite red flag there. But um, uh, you know, beyond beyond this, getting into the, uh, the 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 incidents themselves, I just wanted to get a little bit into that. I mean, you did bring up some good points. That um, I wanted to talk about Chattanooga, but you know what? I'm going to shift over to Lafayette, okay? Because this we'll we'll come back to Chattanooga, but let's let's talk about Lafayette, okay? I looked at this uh, uh, shooting and. I watch the media coverage very closely. I'm going to play you some clips, too. Uh, now, what was interesting, what's, what I find interesting, and James, you can comment on this, too. Tell me if you agree or not. But it seems like more than the shooting itself these days, more than the actual event, um, like you said, the media is not interested in the bones and the nuts and bolts of the actual act itself. But it seems like the press conferences now are the focus. With Chattanooga, we had... Big, big press conferences within t- less than 24, within hours, within hours, and you had the way they staged these press conferences where they have the sheriff and Fred Fletcher in Chattanooga, and behind him there's a woman deputy with the wide-brim hat, and you had a sheriff Then you had behind him a a, a soldier in fatigues, battle fatigues, hands behind the back. Then you had another uh, sort of civilian looking guy in a suit. And you have everyone they they all stand behind the speaker and it's so cynically staged, all of these press conferences that I'm almost, it's making me nauseous every time I see it because I know that there has to be a stage manager to direct that and place the people in positions. So already there is staging involved and people Mm -hmm. say that's just media that's just press no it's not when there's a mass shooting i mean you should the focus should be on the tragedy and not sending some political message about how diverse your sheriff's department is or your city <laughs> your municipal government you've got a chinese guy there too you know they, it's absolutely balanced out and the message from chattanooga was that law enforcement and military are working together. This was the main message in the first 48 hours that we've coordinated. Their fusion has taken place. Law, local law enforcement are working together with federal agents from the FBI and military as well. And so the, how does the public perceive this? And this is the same thing I saw in Lafayette. Except in Lafayette, uh, it's to do with the, I mean, just comment on that press conference thing first and this idea of fusion from Chattanooga, and I want to get on to an FBI statement after that.
1: Well, the Chattanooga shooting took place one day after Jade Helm officially began, and, of course, the Jade Helm military exercise is something that involves the um, integration of military... Special operations, alongside federal government agencies and local and regional law enforcement. So here you have. Uh, <laughs> this seems like more than a coincidence, uh, mm-hmm. as you suggest. Uh, here is a, a, an example of this integration taking place, apparently because of this very urgent need, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but is that is this something that may in fact actually be uh, timed uh, to um, take place at, at the same time that Jade Helm is just uh, just getting off the off the ground? Um, that's something that is we really do need to I think take into take into consideration as far as the way in which these press conferences operate, the way in which the the personnel are assembled. Anyone that's been to a uh, political rally uh, photo opportunity for a politician realizes that uh, the individuals who appear in back of the given political leader are strategically assembled in terms of race and gender and, and what have you. And it appears, as you suggest, that there's something similar that's going on with these press conferences. I think it's also important to keep in mind Certainly, uh, speaking from my area of specialization, that people deal in images and when they see an event like this, I'm not obviously not talking about people involved in the alternative media who are really looking very closely at this and analyzing it. I'm talking about the lay public who witnessed these things in a, almost kind of a drive-by way you know, they might be walking through the the living room and, and watching a couple of minutes on CNN, or they you know, they see what's above the fold in the newspaper, or but they really don't look more closely. And so we are dealing in images, and so there's a crisis. There's there's something that's taken place. There's been uh, a, a shooting. Uh, you have the, uh, the, the the villain or the suspects, and of course all their southern poverty law center says that they're this or they're that and they have these views or those views or they're they're uh, muslim and anyway they're, they're an other in some way shape or form right they're not us they're not the, they're not the the the, uh, the the broader public they don't fit in with the with the majority of public opinion and then you have to have closure of that narrative of that story that tragic story, and part of the closure involves the press conference. It involves the assemblage of these officials who are going to make things right. They're going to they're um, make everything better. And that involves, of course, law and order. That involves more police state. That involves more of us giving up our civil liberties, which we've been doing, you know, since 2001 and really since 1995 with the OKC bombing. And, um, and then finally, there is the mourning that takes place, right? The candles and the flowers and the kumbaya and everything's going to be better. Uh, we need to forgive the dastardly person no matter how dastardly they appear to be and and that's it and then a few days later it all takes place again the following wednesday or thursday or friday
0: mm. so so the the morning uh with regards to chattanooga the official morning was midweek and that was rear Ad, navy rear admiral mary jackson gave a speech at a very bloated press conference uh there in chattanooga And that was, that segment on CNN was introduced by Barbara Starr, who is the quote Pentagon correspondent for CNN. I think she actually works for the Pentagon. That's another story. But she said that these are the fallen. So she called the victims of Chattanooga the fallen. And she's, indeed they are the fallen because this is uh, a theater of war. This is, this is no different than the falling in combat in Iraq or Afghanistan, the fact that they fell in Chattanooga. And so this was reiterated by the rear admiral in her speech, Mary Jackson, on, I believe it was the day before, uh, it was Wednesday, I think, and she said the same thing that... Uh, you know, law, you know, this is uh, this is why America America has been brought together by this tragedy, um, and uh, and stand behind our men and women like we do in uh, overseas. So basically, the war has come home to their homeland or Dervaterland is now here. The war is here, and this is the this is the real message that we're meant to take home from Chattanooga is that this is no longer an existential thing going on in the Middle East. Uh, this is a war that's here, and then all this sort of hardcore uh, hawks will be... Um, you know, 24-7 on the news media saying we need to confront ISIS over there, uh, meaning the Middle East. We need to deploy troops on the ground. This is already becoming a, a, a talking point for the GOP, uh, pre-election, you know, campaigning and stuff is that we need to redeploy troops. Who's going to be the first to redeploy troops? I mean, that's the sort of race that's going on on the Republican side. It's a race to see who will be the strongest in terms of quote national security. Um, so, but the, so the, the press conference put an exclamation point on that, and I, I very much saw the symbolism there: female rear admiral of the Navy giving that speech, and she sort of made it official. The, the war is here in America, in the homeland.
1: That's right. And uh, another thing that is I, this is something that is it's very concerning obviously, uh, because we have things such as NORTHCOM uh, in terms of the, the Northern Command, right? We have laws on the books that can really, at the drop of a hat, usher in formal martial law in the United States uh, where you have uh, a dictator in the executive office who's who's calling the shots. Where you have the Constitution that is essentially dissolved, uh, the power of Congress is put in abeyance, and um, it's one we are one uh, major uh, event or and or false flag away from that taking place, and we see arguably the stage being set for that with an event such as this. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up along the, along those lines in terms of Chattanooga. Uh, I'm not sure if you came across this, is that uh, there is a a Lance Corporal Larry Wells, uh, at least his photograph, uh, Uh, was something that was used. Now, this Lance Corporal Larry Wells, it was announced in the Washington Post that he was killed in Najaf, Iraq, in 2004. Yes. And yet his image appears to be being used by the U.S. government, uh, for, uh, uh, an apparent, uh, a Skip Wells. Uh, yes. Uh, who was one of the, one of the slain mm-hmm. at, uh, at, at the Chattanooga.
0: Yes. Yeah, so it, that appeared in the... So you can go online. It's You, you go to the bottom of our uh, Trouble in the Homeland article on 21st Century Wire. On the bottom, there's a little update section. And you'll see a Washington Post, uh, Faces of the Fallen. So the Washington Post have all the uh, men and women have been killed in Iraq, uh, the Fallen. And so Larry Wells, who's from Mount Vernon, or Vernon, Louisiana, I believe, so was killed in 2004 in Iraq. There's his... Shot. He's also a lance corporal. His last name is Wells. And then Larry Skip Squire Skip Squire Wells from Savannah, Georgia, was supposedly killed at Chattanooga last week. To me, it's the identical image. Uh, it's very close. It's the same. It looks to me like the same person, but a slightly different image. Sorry, just correct myself. Same person, slightly different photograph, but same person. And I'm looking at that. I'm looking at these two guys. And thinking, wow, well, and I'm thinking, well, are they brothers? Well, uh, looked into that different hometown, uh, 12 years apart, uh, arguably they might not have the same facial features if they were twins or a year apart as brothers. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I've just asked the innocent question, are these two related? Because that's a hell of a coincidence. Okay. Um, so that, that, uh, I don't know what to make of that. To be quite honest, James, it looks like the same guy.
1: It does, and there are also photographs of uh, this individual's mother uh, taking part in a memorial service with a t-shirt with a screen print of uh, Wells that looks very similar, if not identical, to the photograph that appeared in the Washington Post in 2004.
0: Are you kidding me? No. Oh, my god. <laughs> oh my god. Wow. Oh, well, we're gonna have to get on that one after the show. Get working on that because that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of a smoking gun of sorts. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I just encourage people to, you know, to look, look at these things themselves. Look close, decide for yourself. this is all factual, publicly accessible information it's not like we're conjuring any of this up it's all out there. All you have to do is go look at it for yourself and 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 tell us what you think don't tell us let 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 the world know what you think let your your colleagues or your uh, your friends or family know what they think but that's that's pretty mind blowing stuff james um, now uh, just quickly back to uh, back to the uh, the Chattanooga shooting. Now one of the things I just quickly before the break I want you to comment on this too and uh, you know we saw um, them saying that uh, you know this this person wasn't on the terror radar Uh, he just came out of nowhere he's an all American boy you know uh, mixed martial arts uh, involved in all sorts of uh, American activities just like Tamerlan Tazarinoff, boxing champion just like uh, Christopher Lee uh, Chris, uh, Chris Lee Cornell from Ohio, wrestling champion, all American boy, uh, and all of a sudden he's gone rogue, uh, he's become an Islamic terrorist. In the case of two of those three, uh, are not allowed to defend themselves because of course we're told they're dead or they're not around. So, um, it's just the narrative just goes there, but so not on the terror radar. So we're meant to believe this is the new narrative that it's anybody. In fact, the more all American, the more you should be suspicious, right?
1: Exactly. I'm afraid that is uh, the direction that we're going in.
0: Yeah. So, um, J- James, if possible, I, I, can you stay with us on the other side of the break? Because uh, I've got c- quite a few things I wanted to share with you, and this is just a riveting conversation.
1: I certainly can for a few minutes, sure.
0: Okay. We're going we're gonna to take a short break, um, and we'll be right back on the other side with Professor James Tracy. Sound. you know it's that time of the show overdrive into the third hour uh, we're luckily being, uh, staying with us is Professor James Tracy in the third hour of Overdrive. And, uh, before the break, we were breaking down various aspects of, uh, some of these recent shootings. And, uh, I, I, made a joke a few weeks back, James. I said, we're gonna, um, we're gonna release a newspaper called The Daily Shooter, because it seems just about every day there's some kind of a shooting event. And you know what? As, as that, as that was just a joke I was making, then I listened to this clip. Um, this is in the wake of Lafayette this week. Go ahead and roll audio clip number 11. Give it give it a, a lot of volume, too, Hesher, because I think it's the lower one. But roll this, Daily Shooter.
3: Last night, just before an Alabama man opened fire in a Lafayette, Louisiana movie theater, killing two women before turning the gun on himself, President Obama admitted that gun laws in the United States are his, quote, biggest frustration.
1: The United States of America is the one
3: advanced nation on earth in which we do not have sufficient common sense gun safety laws uh, even in the face of repeated uh, mass killings. The U.S. is no stranger to gun violence. In fact, they're basically a regular occurrence. In fact, according to the nonprofit website Mass Shooting Tracker, which keeps track of gun deaths in the U.S., There have been 204 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year as of July 23rd. And what makes that number truly stunning? The fact that July 23rd was the 204th day of the year. Just to reiterate, that's the equivalent of one mass shooting in the U.S. a day.
0: That's it. The Daily Shooter. So it is a, <laughs> it is a daily event. I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's, uh, we were joking a few weeks ago. We said the daily shooter. It is a daily event, daily mass shootings in the United States. So it's, uh, the, the, the thing was Obama did a legacy interview, James, uh, on the morning of the Lafayette shooting, which I believe was Thursday. Obama did a BBC leg, what I call a legacy interview and noticed that, uh, so they're five hours ahead of New York. So that would have been done normal time. Uh, during British time, but that would have come out morning, U.S. East Coast time. So Obama's interview with the BBC, definitely a legacy interview. And of course, he says his biggest regret is that he's had, frustrated about not being able to do more about gun control than Q Lafayette to, uh, just at that time, boom, theater shooting in Lafayette. Some guy goes in, buys a ticket, goes into a theater and just starts shooting people randomly for no reason whatsoever. I mean, is that a coincidence or what?
1: It sounds like it's a little bit more than that. But uh, these events cumulatively cumulatively, uh, paved the way for the type of legislation that the uh, Democratic Party, the formal Democratic Party and the Obama administration uh, have been vying for uh, since uh, at least um, late 2012 actually earlier than that, but they were given uh, renewed kind of impetus to do this when Obama was re-elected. And within six weeks of Obama being re-elected, we have the, the Sandy Hook massacre that took place, and there was a major push then to revise uh, the country's gun laws to push gun control, right? Uh, There's another agenda alongside gun control that is being pushed quite successfully, much more under the radar, and that is uh, the whole issue of mental health, which was uh, with uh, the uh, Lafayette shooter, uh, Hauser, uh, John Hauser, that he allegedly had a history of mental health, and yet this did not prevent him from buying a a gun and the pawn shop. And now we are going to have mandatory mental health screenings in all public schools. This is part of the uh, federal government's uh, program to to make this once again mandatory. So there are going to be threat assessments on children, right, because we can't trust anyone now. And as you suggested before the break, the more all-American you are, the greater a threat you, in fact, may be. So everyone is, is, uh, guilty until proven innocent, just like uh, when we go to the airport and have to take our shoes and belt off to be able to get, uh, into the airplane. Uh, this is something that's being rolled out onto the, the city streets. It's being rolled out into our institutions, even our, uh, schools. Uh, you know, the most innocent are being scrutinized uh, for whether or not they might somehow, you know, they're, they might somehow be imbalanced. They might be a threat to their peers, to the teachers, to the community. And um, this was something that was announced in late 2014. The uh, Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice were involved in allocating over $100 million in grant money to help get these programs off the ground, once again, at every public school throughout the country, the mental health exams. You recall that there was a great deal of controversy when this was attempted by the George W. Bush administration in the mid-2000s, but here it's coming back again with the nation terrified uh because there's a mass shooting reported every day. And in many cases, again, the sub narrative of many of these shootings is that the person somehow had mental health issues. Uh, there's a similar program that's going on in Scotland that's already underway called the Gerfic program, getting it right for every child. This is something that mm-hmm. is over something that is uh, under the aegis of the United Nations uh, Commission for the rights of the child. Uh, you've got to have a social worker, essentially from birth till death. But yes, the, yes,
0: The name they're called the named person. It's a yes. the, yeah, a named person assigned to the child to. And they said, I quote, to help the child in transition from childhood to to work. You know, as if that's all there is in life. But and they said, don't worry, the parents will also be involved in the child. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, but it's, 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 so it's being rolled out in Scotland, but when you look at the various programs that arose out of, that are attached to the Sandy Hook Massacre, uh, there, there's, you know, there was a, um, a document that was produced in November of 2014. In fact, on the same day is the Florida State shooting involving Myron May produced by a commission specifically in Connecticut. I, th- I think it is, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I believe the uh, Connecticut uh, Commission on the Child or on the Rights of the Child, very similar sort of tenor to the uh, United Nations uh, Commission on the Rights of the Child. But they are arguing, centering specifically on this personage of Adam Lanza, that now all children will have to be assessed and monitored uh, for potential learning disabilities, instability, uh, shortcomings in parenting at home and the domestic sphere. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we are increasingly having the state, you know, wedded to us uh, from birth until adulthood and thereafter. And, of course, it will be from uh, adulthood thereafter now with the uh federalization the nationalization of health care so eventually this will likely evolve into a single payer system where the government will know uh pretty much everything about our uh, our condition our health condition
0: no you hit the you hit the nail on the head so this is um, here's a clip from one of the press conferences after the Lafayette shooting now bear in mind the time frame we're looking at here um, this is not a week after the shooting. This is not 48 hours after the shooting. This is less than 24 hours after the actual mass shooting. And we have the head of the general hospital, uh, there in Lafayette. I don't have his name to hand, but we will post this on 21st century. We're going to do a breakdown of Lafayette, which we'll have released tomorrow or Tuesday. Now, this is the, this is the head of the, uh, the healthcare provider there basically giving some giant polemic speech about the need to increase federal funding for mental health outpatient care. Go ahead and roll clip audio clip number five. Listen closely to this whole section of the press conference here. Audio clip five.
3: Um, I have not been notified of any uh, uptick in, in patients patients presenting to our emergency room with uh, mental health concerns. Um, you know, so I can't I can't answer that. You know, and it certainly is. Certainly, the answer is probably yes. I mean, you know, you can't, your community can't absorb something like this and just go about their day uh, like nothing happened. Um, As far as what to watch, you know, what to watch for, any any sort, basically, if you have any issues, you need to reach out and and talk to someone. But especially if it starts affecting your your daily activities or you start thinking of thoughts that are harmful or detrimental to yourself or others. Are you offering assistance for for, for, family members? Yes.
4: I think, I think on a, a global perspective and certainly I, I think as a as a country uh, I, I think in regard to this mental health issue I, I think as we look at what has happened in terms of mental health funding for care throughout the United States and I'm specifically in talking about you know sort of the, the, the reason behind this incident um, you know we have seen dramatic decreases in funding in mental for mental health services throughout the United States and and care has been shifted to an outpatient focus and I think what we're seeing over all uh is a is a real lack of service uh, for patients that are that are suffering from from mental illness uh i I think we need as as a society to really look at parity with medical care and psychiatric care uh in order to 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 hopefully avoid situations like this occurring uh in the future
0: okay so there okay so that's bingo james uh you hit the nail right on the head that's right out of the horse's mouth less than 24 hours after the shooting okay and uh so it definitely this this putting that into the uh uh, national conversation injecting that into the sphere of priorities uh in which the federal government needs to make this a big issue they're almost uh in a way it's a kind of a browbeating exercise if you're looking at it from a contrarian point of view it looks like a giant brow beating exercise uh to sort of knock society right into place right into line
1: absolutely and i think it's also important for us to keep in mind about this john russell hauser how much do we really know about him Uh, you know now it appears that he was unstable uh but to what degree is he a personage, perhaps not unlike Adam Lanza, where there's a great deal that's being integrated into this personality that can no longer speak for himself because he is deceased. To what degree is is um, his overall personality fact and to what degree has it been fictionalized? Has things been grafted onto him um, for the purposes of a broader agenda. There's an interesting case that you may or may not be aware of, Patrick, of uh, Michael Cravey. He also went by Thomas Brinkley. He was a YouTube researcher. In his late 20s, he was 28 years old, and he uh, was delving into the... uh Aurora shooting the Aurora theater shooting of July of 2012 mm-hmm. and then something odd happened uh, on March 3rd of 2014 he uh, apparently went crazy and he attacked uh, a couple on the University of Florida campus with a knife allegedly and then there was a car chase and then several hours later he uh, was killed by police after he apparently Attack them with a hatchet. Now, I bring this case up because Cravey seemed entirely stable. I know people that that knew him uh, fairly well, that were involved in his research community. He was asking good questions. He was intelligent. He was even, you know, he he was definitely um, someone who is not, uh, who did not exhibit unusual behavior but he also complained of being under possible surveillance in the weeks leading up to this particular event there were parties unknown to him taking over his social media accounts his instant messaging accounts and sending messages and posting tweets that he did not do that he did not you know post or send and so it is i think fairly easy to be able to frame someone, to be able to surveil them, to put them under a certain degree of harassment uh, and uh, to pressure them one way or another or to frame them, to make it look as if uh, they were a person that they were not in fact. And we have to take these things into consideration because these, these projects, we know that they, they do take place. Uh, that there are people that uh, are that that have been subject to things like uh, electronic harassment and uh, and so forth, and maybe they are pushed over the edge, and or maybe there is there are identities that are constructed of these individuals, and then are presented to the broader public after an event has transpired. But we really don't know the specifics of the the given instance itself whether it be a shooting or you know, whatever the case may be, frequently they're, they're shootings. But um, we don't have access to the crime scene. In many cases, the forensics are botched or they're not forthcoming, as you suggest with regard to Chattanooga. Uh, so we are given a narrative, we're given a storyline, we're given characters who can't speak for themselves, uh, who who, who, cannot, who cannot attest to what they did or did not do. Who cannot attest to the the events that led up to the, the key event involving their demise? So, again, I just bring these these things up to uh, to point out that there are probably a great many subtexts to at least some of these uh, of these 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 shooting these shooting events. What happened to uh, what do we really know about know about Abdulaziz? Uh, it's like the Zarnyev brothers. As you pointed out uh, earlier on last hour, uh, they were their behavior was in no way unusual. They in many cases were they were athletes they were uh, you know they had a substantial number of friends of social contacts. What they did was completely out of character. Uh, their friends could make no sense of it. So really, at the end of the day, we have to have to uh, use our own logic and our own reasoning uh, to come to terms uh, with uh, with with these scenarios.
0: Well, we know we know how lazy uh, the mainstream media is, especially your broadcast networks. I mean, so the, the, you're absolutely correct, James. Is that uh, after the fact? Uh, you know, so guilt by social media after the fact. So it'd be very easy to hack. Someone's Twitter account, uh, or Facebook account to post something, uh, and then obviously the the social media trail has been constructed. And then after the fact that Wolf Blitzers of the world or the Anderson Coopers of the world just point out and say, oh, look, there's it, it, it a tweet there and that looks, uh, pretty Islamic, that tweet. So, you know, it must be him. He's a, he's it must be a terrorist. He's shown, he is definitely inspired. Inspired by ISIS. You don't even need to be a member of ISIS so long as you're inspired by ISIS now. So that's easily done. And that seems to be the norm now with, uh, media coverage, um, is that they're looking at social media and even investigations. They say federal investigators are now looking at Abdulaziz's computers and looking at his social media activity so that they can do, cause it's all fake. You know the thing about social media is it's all virtual. I could put any picture up, any any catchphrase. I can pretend to be a uh, you know to to have one view today and another view tomorrow. I could give my social media account login details to somebody and they can put some crazy stuff up, um, which I have had people. Helped me on Twitter before, so I do give you know there are quite a few people actually that have my Twitter um, uh, account logins because they're doing stuff for for 21st Century Wire. But um, it just goes to show you that it doesn't mean anything in terms of digital, uh, for, even digital forensics it means nothing. So in, so these this is the basis of a federal investigation. You know what, what what photographs people have on their social media accounts. I mean, there's nothing forensic about it. You know so. But this is the world we live in. So, with regards to this, no. Okay, Abdul Aziz. Here's a perfect example. Not even social media, James. Okay, CNN does this all the time. Okay, and they, they they even put this in print on their website. They do it verbally all the time. But they say our sources tell us that uh, Abdul Aziz is a very, very mentally uh, disturbed. Uh, was a manic depressive, uh, possibly on SSRI medication, and uh, a heavy drug user. I quote a heavy drug user according to sources now and another other sources say that he was x y and z and abused drugs some of the time and uh, w- uh, was a party animal uh, lots of party drugs including men, ma- marijuana say sources say sources and they yeah. just do this over and over and guess what i can prove whether that's true or not if he was a heavy marijuana user i can prove by the autopsy I can look at the toxicology report, and I know exactly what drugs he's taken in the last sixty days. Okay, is that information going to be available to me as a member of the public, or is it as a I am an accredited journalist? So, do I have access to that? And I will tell you right now, the answer is no.
1: Yes, absolutely. You could say the same thing about uh, you know the key. Uh, mass shooting of the past several years the, the Sandy Hook Massacre uh, the amount of forensic evidence that was available to journalists in the aftermath of that event was extremely limited and even what was forthcoming in terms of the police report left much to be desired there were all sorts of holes uh, in, in subsequent uh, documentation that came out uh, purportedly uh, putting the whole matter to rest
0: and um, just also with regards to Lafayette, um, uh, this Randall Mann, he is, a, I believe, an executive there at the local trauma center. And his daughter just happened to be buying popcorn during the movie shooting, called her father, and he came, and I believe he personally transported some of the uh, victims to the hospital. Go ahead and roll audio clip number eight. Uh, here's another outstanding coincidence from Lafayette, audio clip number eight.
2: We'll, we'll obviously keep in close contact with hospital officials, see how they improve. But I would love to bring Randall Mann back in because Randall Mann. I don't know if you're able to hear that official from that uh, hospital there, but my goodness, he spoke quite a bit about where you work, Acadian, um, and, and, and the tremendous response from her first responders. You know, just to remind everyone it was your 21-year-old daughter who happened to be in that theater, got out of there, came and told you, and you, you know, w- went to the scene right away. C- can you just tell me? What it was, she said. She saw. She experienced, and of course, what you saw with your own eyes.
4: Sure. Uh, she told me that uh, well, she and her friend were on the second from the top row of the theater. Theater was mostly full, from what I understand. Uh, they were all the way on the left-hand side. Apparently, the shooter was four or five seats to the right. She said uh, about 20 minutes into the movie, she heard one pop, and. Uh, you know, she said, I want to believe this is anything but a gunshot. Is it a firecracker? Is it something going on? Uh, then she said she looked over at the noise, and she saw him shoot, and she said in a semicircle, just randomly. not She said not to really like he was taking aim, just shooting. And uh, several more shots. Uh, she hit the floor. And her friend hit the deck as well, and they kind of scampered out. She she made the comment, and I thought it was awesome, that uh, you know it wasn't like a stampede to get out. It wasn't like people fighting each other. It was really we need to get out of here together uh... and no. unfortunately, oh. we saw the opposite side of the theater from the shooter on the same road
0: kumbaya the
4: opposite side and thank goodness he didn't aim her way so she got out unscathed and you know, i do want to reiterate what they talked about in the press conference because our whole medical community and i do appreciate the kind words about the and our medics uh, but Lafayette general our lady lords and regional medical center the three hospitals we sent patients to last night which is phenomenal and the entire continuum of care in our community, we're very
2: fortunate. Yeah, just to know, police arrived on the scene within sixty seconds. You guys were there within six minutes. And these, you know, these—I'm I'm sick of covering these stories. If I can be totally frank, but you know, in in the wake of these, you hear about these hero stories. We have heard about the teachers. We heard about the hospital worker who personally took one of the one of the victims to the hospital. It's um sounds like a pretty special place, Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, Randall man, our best to to your community and of course your daughter. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay, so 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 James, you get the gist of that. Uh, that was, uh, I believe, the ambulance or executive there. His daughter just happened to be. And does this sound like a, some kind of a drill? I mean, th- this would be a nice scenario to have within a drill, which would be, um, you know, use the cell phone, make the call, get a civilian vehicle over, get those people there. Uh, all they're talking about are response times. About the, 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 the quality of first responders, the staff, uh, the continuum of care. It's like a promotional junket. It's like a promotional media junket for the health care providers in Lafayette. And then Brooke Baldwin from CNN says, frankly, I'm sick of covering these stories. I'm sorry, but CNN makes all its money off all these disaster stories because then the ratings are up. So she'd be unemployed if they didn't have these stories to cover, quite frankly. But that's another story. But this, this has all been about Lafayette, James. It's all been grandstanding. I have a bunch of other clips I won't even play talking about federal funding and they've been preparing for 12 months and because of the federal programs that came into play 12 months ago we were able to really respond and, and excel and they're almost happy that there was a shooting it's like this celebration that uh, the first responders and the police all work together and they're giving you the response times I mean it's almost nauseating
1: well not only that but it suggests that there's this state of constant siege and tension, in fact, that we now must live under and be entirely dependent upon uh, law enforcement uh, for our own protection, right? Uh, There's no suggestion in any of these very highly publicized shootings of anyone being there who has concealed carry uh, who can actually fight back uh, the concentration is on, as you suggest, the uh, federal funding that aids in uh, more speedy response time. I'm sorry, but they're responding to do mop-up. <laughs> yeah. They're not there to defend the public and defend the people, uh-huh. again, if these uh, events are, in fact, genuine. But we have to look at uh, the deeper message that, uh, that's being conveyed here. That all uh, oh, this is becoming so routine, but at least uh, the the police officers are actually responding more quickly and priding themselves on that.
0: Yeah, and so uh, so Hesher roll audio clip number nine. Now this is less than twenty four hours. The FBI are on the scene. FBI guy making a all these sweeping statements about. Um, how he's taking credit for the success of this shooting—that's uh, what it sounds like, anyway. What he calls the success, which is the the great response time and everything. This is cl- audio clip nine. F- FBI.
3: Common that that active shooters take their own life. In fact, in about forty percent of the time that within an FBI survey, a study, forty percent of those active shooters took their own life. Sixty percent of these events occurred and concluded before the police arrived. So here you have to look at uh, and credit the valor of these police officers. When that active shooter call goes out, and we saw here in the Navy Yard just a few months ago, uh, within a month, this very aggressive response from the law enforcement community. These police officers know what they have to do. It is a grim task. It shows incredible bravery. We saw it in Chattanooga right into the line of fire. We've seen it in other places where, as you are relying on your training and the tactics that you learn and try to see who is with you, you're wondering whether you're going to make it through this encounter or go home at the end of your shift. Some will not. Uh, so we see incredible bravery by the police officers, and, and this training and the FBI ramped up a training effort over the last three, three years to train thousands of local law enforcement. Thanks for the insight, Ron Hosko. Really appreciate it.
0: Okay, so there's, so there it is, James. The FBI has been ramping up the training the last few years and, uh, the brave law enforcement, and they're talking about Lafayette, James, in the, according to their own narrative even of what happened, they're saying how brave these officers were in the line of fire. They weren't in the line of fire. The sh- according to their narrative, the shooter did some, uh, shot in the theater and then, then shot himself. So the police weren't in the line of fire at all. So, but again, it's just just pumping this whole thing up. Um, our our men and women, our servicemen, our law—anybody in a uniform basically—is to be canonized, and you must prostrate yourself at the altar of the state.
1: That's right, and we also have to take with a grain of salt pretty much anything that the FBI says. I think one of the most important works of journalism that's come out in the past few years is Trevor Aronson's book, The Terror Factory, uh, where he concludes that 95% of the alleged terrorist incidents that have taken place since 2001 uh, have been in some way, shape, or form contrived. They've involved patsies, you know, mentally deficient individuals or people with substance abuse problems that are in very compromising uh, positions who've been uh, more or less entrapped uh, into doing what they have done. And then the FBI can come in as the heroes and say, ah, look at this. We foiled another terrorist plot. And uh, what they're doing is they're just feathering their own nests, they're protecting their own agency and their own pensions which is ultimately the goal of any government agency Uh, and um, they're perpetuating this phony war on terror which is based on a lie which is based on one of the most misunderstood events and that uh, is the set of events rather that took place on september 11th of 2001
0: no, you're, you, you, you've just, uh, gazumped me what I was just about to say, James. Um, and, uh, so, t- so for, for, for Chattanooga, immediately we were told that the shooter, Yusuf Abdulaziz, was not on the terror radar. Okay. Then we soon we find out that not only was he on the terror radar, but his father was under FBI surveillance or, well, that's what they said. That his dad, a Palestinian uh, immigrant, was on FBI watch list for uh, allegedly ties to terror organizations through uh, donations and financing. Okay, So if that was the case, if the dad was under a microscope like that, uh, I guarantee you every single one of his kids and his wife and anyone else is going to be under surveillance as well, and especially a young male. They would definitely have a file on him, okay, more than the females, okay, in the family. So he was on the radar. So that's a lie. They said the same thing about Tamerlan They, The FBI gave a national press conference saying, don't look at social media. Look, here's the two faces of our suspects. Does anyone know who they are? Does anyone have any information about them? When they knew damn well who those brothers were because they had approached Tamerlin Tazarinov to, to work as an informant. And in his, I could say the same about Abdulaziz's father. He could, he could be an informant. If he's a classified undercover informant, then we won't know if he is anyway. But Tamerlan went to Chechnya uh, on the on the dime of the Jamestown Foundation which is a George Soros funded sort of uh, uh NGO type think tank for the peace in the Caucasus conference in Chechnya in Grozny now Tamerlan went there a few years before the Boston bombing, so he would have been in prime position to work as some kind of informant uh, for the federal government, some agency anyway, okay? So they knew who he was. That was a lie they did in public. The same with Elton Simpson, the supposed Garland, Texas, ISIS attacker, okay? He had an informant that we know was paid 120 odd thousand dollars to shadow him, probably groom him, to his Muslim convert status to where he is being used as a kind of a patsy in a fake, totally contrived event. I don't know what you think about the Garland, Texas shooting, James, but that, to me, was phony. Then we have the Christmas tree bomber, Mohammed Osman Muhammad. Uh, then we have the Detroit underwear bomber. He had a handler with him, according to eyewitness testimonies. There's the Christmas tree bomber was uh, groomed. Then we had quasi-Mohammed... Nafis, which was a Bengali student who was absolute, a foreign student, absolutely groomed and even brought into radicalization by the FBI. Okay. Then you have other people pressured in, you know, the Woolwich Slasher. He was pressured to be an informant. Madi Hashi, who's, who's in you know, a U.S. federal pen, thanks to uh, our new Attorney General, Loretta Lynch. He was tortured made to confess, and they still locked him up. He's a British care worker. He's in the U.S. federal pen now for terrorism charges. Okay, all of these involve some level of coercion, uh, some informant's involvement, or uh, blackmail, or torture even, in the case of Hashi. Okay, there's nothing real about any of these terrorists at all. It's all fake.
1: Absolutely, yes. It's, as uh, is, is, uh, I've suggested, as Aronson has suggested, as, as you have, uh this is a, a it's a theater of uh terror you know it's something that is uh it's constructed and uh there's really if you look uh, it's not even a matter of of delving into it very very deeply uh, if you scratch the surface uh you can kind of smell the sulfur
0: mm-hmm. yeah and um, it, it it is a little bit disturbing because a lot of this information, James, is is totally available. Yet I still see pundits. I still see the experts or the terror experts, like you know your Bob Bears or uh, your uh, um, what's his name Baker from uh, Diligence LLC, one of these Merck firms. All these guys come on like a parade on CNN or Fox talking about. World Trade Center bombing in 1993, how that was a terrorist attack. Yeah. And it's well known, even the New York Times has run exposés, that the FBI had run the whole operation, essentially, and that, in fact, they had a chance to, to have a dummy bomb rather than a live bomb. But the FBI, because uh, of, of recording that was available, luckily, we know the FBI agent said, no, 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 use the real bomb. Okay, and that's history. But they talk about it as if it was an attempted al-Qaeda attack on the U.S. And what do we do in this environment of uh, denial and disinformation? Because it's all there. The facts are there.
1: Well, unfortunately, our institutions that we would otherwise look to in order to, uh, to get to the bottom of these things and to inform public discourse and opinion are the academy, universities, and journalism, um, you know, and we do have alternative journalism, but aside from that, formal mainstream journalism, they've really dropped the ball. If you look at what is this kind of subdiscipline discipline of, uh, of, 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 of criminal justice and, uh, and sociology, terrorism studies and political science, there's something called terrorism studies. Um, but most of that is useless because, first of all, they simply, as with these pundits that you bring up, they simply use the official narrative uh, as the starting off point, of the official narrative of 9-11, of the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. And so if you use that as the foundation for what you are studying, whatever you're going to look at is flawed. It, it's a totally disingenuous uh, approach. Uh, so there is, is a, a lack of, of, of integrity, and honesty in the academy and in these areas uh, that really should be digging into and addressing these things in concrete ways I'm talking about for example social sciences for the most part that's not being done you do have some, some rare exceptions but for the most part to even broach these types of questions about uh, 9-11 and how flawed the 9-11 commission report was uh, it, it, it's something that lays the groundwork for continued phony events that we've been discussing now for the past hour and a half to unfold in the news media entirely unquestioned. And they'll remain unquestioned. Again, because if you don't have uh, the the intellectuals, again, who are journalists and um, academicians who are really – Asking about these things because it's their responsibility to do so, it's their professional responsibility to do so, then they'll continue. And the uh, government, uh, those forces within government, uh, that are given a free hand to continue these things and to intensify these things to where we're going to lose more of our civil liberties. Uh, and uh, and ultimately uh, you know, lose this country and the freedoms that uh, that we once did uh, did have.
0: I, I remember listening to uh, an old lecture. So someone that passed away recently—I'd say he probably passed away in the last twelve months. His name was John Judge, and J- to me, John Judge was like the internet before there was an internet. You know, these were guys that kept news ar- news clipping archives, um, photocopied uh, newsletters, subscription newsletters. That was the kind of information underground. And his big case, obviously, that he worked on for 30, year, 40 years, was the JFK assassination. Right. And he's talking to sold-out, full houses, you know, to... T- Putting it out there, uh, you know, in the 70s, in the 80s, before it became a mainstream cultural, um, iconoclast sort of talking point with, after the Oliver Stone film, for instance. But, so he was saying that the system, or it's, it, I guess kind of inferring that academia and even the media, or even politics, you're rewarded. For not looking into these things or not investigating these things, that the the financial rewards are there if you don't do that. You know, not if you, if you do it, you're definitely not gonna get any, uh, any financial rewards. So the system seems to be rewarding everyone who's following the false narrative. Which is basically, if you deny clandestine involvement, in al-Qaeda, for instance, that's an easy one, okay, al-Qaeda, uh, looking at the genesis of it, the legacy of it, uh the deployment of it. You And you don't talk about the clandestine aspects of that in Bosnia, in Afghanistan. And you deny the clandestine involvement in ISIS or any of these al-Nusra front or any of these terrorist outfits that are running amok at the moment in Syria and in Iraq You den- or in America for that matter. You deny clandestine involvement, FBI involvement, uh, undercover informants involvement. If you deny that, then you are absolutely constructing a giant house of lies on a house of car on top of a house of cards. In my opinion, but it seems to be the discourse is all up there on the sort of house of lies, but it's being held up by a house of cards because as soon as you pull the clandestine card, the whole thing collapses.
1: Yeah, it's not anything that, at least as far as my experience goes, there's no written set of laws, and no one says to you, uh, you don't want to go in that direction. Uh, you don't want to ask those types of questions. That doesn't take place. It's it's more subtle. It involves um, things like promotion and tenure in the academy. It involves someone uh, or people who you don't want to alienate, who are going to write a good blurb for your book or who are going to write a letter of recommendation for you uh, or perhaps uh, aid in getting uh, your student a job uh, that you write a recommendation for. So all of these things are bound up in not pushing the envelope, not being controversial. And, um, yes, there are rewards moving up the ladder. Uh, moving to uh, and, and being involved in uh, getting positions in prestigious um, institutions, not only, of course, my experiences in the academy, but also in journalism. We don't see, uh, there's no uh, news anchor that I can think of that has ever actually questioned um, Lee Harvey Oswald's involvement in the JFK assassination, or really scratched the surface of that. Mm-hmm. It's all excepting the Warren Commission, which is just uh, full of holes. Uh, and the same could be said for RFK's assassination, or MLK, uh, where the, the cases are even more airtight in terms of there being a conspiracy, uh, or 9-11, which is a very a, a vast event, very complex. But the official government conspiracy... Concerning that event that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda pulled it off uh, is absurd on its face, and yet uh, here we have uh, most professional thinkers in the West, not just the U.S., but also Europe and the U.K., uh, who won't even broach these topics.
0: Well, London, London Seven Seven. We had a guest on a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple no month ago. Nick Collerstrom. He wrote a book called Terror on the Tube. He was a what I what seemed to be a tenured professor at University of University College London, one of the top universities in the world. And he wrote this book, and they they nailed him in the end for being a Holocaust denier, I think, or something because he it published some or had revisionist views let's say on world war ii history but the thing i think they really went for him was because of his book on seven seven and he clearly laid out there was a drill going on that morning with one thousand individuals uh managed by a private sector security firm called visor consultants and a chap named peter power and that just happened to be practicing for terror attacks at the exact same underground stations at the exact same times and then all of a sudden, the drill went live. And we're meant to say, oh, fancy that. What a coincidence. But Nick was the only sort of academic in Britain or in the world. No one's ever written a book on 7-7 except him that I know of. And uh, he paid a dear price for that professionally. It absolutely ostracized, demonized, meant to look like a fool. Um, you know, just completely his credibility, all his years of, of hard work, just completely taken apart by, well, by his colleagues.
1: I I think with Callistrom, I'm not sure if the book on 7-7, Terror in the Tube, I believe, uh, was the source of drawing fire. I think it was his commentary uh, and his work, his research. On uh, the Holocaust. On the Holocaust, it, yeah. The Holocaust, because that's been something that, as we know, since 1913, public discourse in the West, in the United States in particular, is very heavily policed uh, with the establishment of the uh, Anti-Defamation League. Definitely. And so, yeah. those sorts of things are com- are entirely taboo to the point to where, in some countries, as you know, Patrick, there are laws one could be thrown in jail for any sort of uh, historical research. That is uh, that that's controversial, yeah, and um, I, I think that uh, we're not too far away from where that may, in fact, be the case in terms of reportage and analysis of events that are taking place in the here and now.
0: No, definitely. Yeah. The Southern Poverty Law Center that you, uh, had, uh, talked about earlier, that's, that's actually kind of an outgrowth of the ADL. Um, at least it's an ideological outgrowth, but I think they sort of work in concert. But, yeah. um, the, so yeah, they, they're out there to basically, um, they do top 10 lists of haters. You know, anyone can end up, I had a friend who, who ended up on this. Uh, he was a, a Texas, uh, Republican, you know Texas independence advocate um who passed away uh, a couple of years ago Robert Hurtner he he ended up on the Southern Poverty Law Center hate list because he advocated for the independence of the state of Texas and he declared himself Texas ambassador it was kind of a publicity stunt but you know he was a, he was a good all around fun great guy but he was according to the SPLC he is a hater and they do this time and time again. And anyone who basically weighs in on any of these stories, whether it's Trayvon Martin or, uh, this one in, uh, in Lafayette or whatever, anything, to do, or Oklahoma City, actually. They, they did, actually they came, they really came to prominence as a gatekeeper around the OKC story. Um, is, is when those organizations like SPLC kind of came up, you know, trying to really obscure the links between, uh, Elohim City And the FBI, and again, you have another situation there—quite possibly a giant honeypot at Elohim City, with with regards to Oklahoma. I know we didn't talk much about OKC, but you're pretty well—you seem to be very well versed on that particular subject. And you're right; that was the first big one, 1995. That was the thing that really set this domestic terror agenda in motion. You know, this this juggernaut we're still riding on right now today.
1: Yeah, and that was something that was, in my view, intended to, or at the very least used for derailing uh, uh, heightened gun control legislation, as well as the trajectory and the momentum of the uh, Patriot movement at the time in the United States, where you had kind of a – you had a um, – um, a group of increasingly vocal uh, and politically active uh, individuals who were questioning the policies of the Clinton administration at the time, the the uh, you know NAFTA North American Free Trade Agreement, the increasing internationalization of of trade, things like that. It wasn't only coming from the right, but I think from the left to a significant degree as well. But Oklahoma City and Timothy McVeigh were used. To, uh, to smear, uh, some of these voices from the political right and, uh, and criticism of our, uh, domestic and foreign policies and as well, uh, get past, uh, what at the time today probably be considered rather mild, but what at the time was, uh, really rather draconian, uh, terrorism or anti-terrorism legislation uh that would have that that took away the potential rights of uh of of american citizens uh in the event that they might be uh, in the, the event that they were accused of any terrorist activity and that was something that was in limbo as was uh uh i believe that the clinton administration's um um automatic weapons ban so-called automatic weapons ban uh was something uh that was uh being scrutinized at the time and april 19th of 1995 changed everything changed the whole tenor of the conversation uh so it was a um, it was used in very specific ways uh, by the clinton administration uh in and, and, and
0: strategic kind of kind of way. Yeah yeah the other big danger that uh people aren't aware of there's there's a privatized aspect to military and security now. We saw it first overseas. People are very familiar with companies like Blackwater, uh now called Academy. Um this sort this privatized Trojan horse that is somehow wiggled its way into right, very deep into the military. By the way, um, especially domestically, on bases all around the country, and this, but of course, internationally, and and in government, in federal, in, in civil life, um, you have this privatized. Uh, Trojan horse and, and a privatized command structure that's even embedded in our intelligence agencies, that's even embedded in our police forces. And I'm saying to people, this is a very dangerous epoch that we are, uh, sleepwalking into here because you, you, you have very little accountability with this new sort of private security army intelligence force uh as bad as the state is as bad as public is you have even less accountability when you have these sort of shadowy subcontractor entities that are all staffed with ex pentagon people quote ex but ex cia ex pentagon ex fbi uh ex soldiers that so it's they're just it, seem to be like little islands on themselves. And I see them popping up everywhere. I see their names here and their names there. I see them even with, you talked about uh, um, Jade Helm earlier. That's got private corporations and contractors involved in that too. So it, they're, they're everywhere and they don't seem to be under any sort of um, you know, the same sort of scrutiny that maybe a public body is under. That's a big danger, James.
1: Absolutely. And we have not had Uh, any serious public oversight or inquiry into the um, U.S. intelligence community since the mid-1970s with the the church committee hearings, Rockefeller Commission. And and, um, so it's been 40 years. And as you point out, there's the privatization of intelligence and of military and when something is privatized, there's no public oversight, and the given entity can argue that any of its records are proprietary in nature, mm-hmm. and so they're not going to disclose it, whatever it might be. So yeah, that's a it's it's a very slippery slope that we've been sliding down since 2001, where this whole privatization of these functions have have picked up. Uh, so. That's uh, that's certainly a concern. Along those lines, something I was going to bring up earlier, and um, is that the the infiltration of intelligence into the media is something that we have to take into consideration when we look at these events. Uh, You know, Carl Bernstein wrote "The CIA and the Media" back in 1977. uh, At the time that Congress was really looking into uh, intelligence activities uh, in a very broad kind of all-encompassing way various ways in which they are involved in everyday uh, in, in our everyday uh, lives and um, it's become much worse according to Robert David Steele who I was speaking with uh, last year in an interview he remarked that it's far worse as far as the CIA involvement in the media uh, today than it was uh, 38 years ago when Carl Bernstein wrote that key piece and uh, there's, again, there's, there's a limited degree of the public being able to know who is an asset or who may be directly employed by these intelligence agencies, whether they are public, you know, or whether they are private intel agencies. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a, yeah, that's kind of, you know, like I said, the devil I know is the public side. I can deal with that. I can almost fight it out in the open if I can get it by the horns. The private side, I can't really even identify it half the time. So they're just like there, you know, and who are those guys? Oh yeah, they're, they're over there in that office on the third floor. We don't know what they do, um, in the case of the military, but so you, not, not only the CIA, James, but the NSA. As well, has people uh, performing in, in those sort of duties as well, or even the National Reconnaissance Office, or, you know, who knows uh, how deep in the Pentagon it goes in terms of uh, what they might refer to as uh, information warfare that has to do with national security. So, in other words, keeping perceptions on issues managed to such a degree that it is going to make this country more secure. Uh, domestically and internationally, and that'd be the justification for an Operation Mockingbird, for instance, where you know that there's a huge number of editors and producers, um, that might actually be getting either a double paycheck, or they're only, they've only got their jobs because they're working their sources, which are intelligence community sources that are feeding them, um, you know, garbage most of the time, but they're, they're lauded in their, in their profession because they have such great sources in the pentagon are great sources in langley and that's how they keep their lofty positions at at cnn or any of these other outfits but i think it's even worse james now they're not even hiding now you look at the the panel every time one of these incidents happens or there's an isis incident the experts come in and they split It's quadruple screen split screen four guys up there half of them are cia Or they're ex—they're openly saying, "I used to be a terror uh, undercover terrorist for the FBI. I pretended to be a terrorist to to get to snag guys in the local mosque." There's one guy—I forgot his name—he's up there. So they have all snitches and covert operatives up there giving commentary on all these important events that are supposed to affect our lives. This is the normal practice now in the media.
1: Well, once in the CIA or FBI or NSA, you're always in. And uh, we can't conclude that simply because they say they're an ex-officer that they have severed their ties from those agencies. Those uh, ties run fairly deep. And uh, they, even if they have uh, formally broken off ties, they're still going to uphold the prerogatives of the given agency. Sure
0: yeah yeah no absolutely and um that there's a conflict of interest there, absolutely a conflict but not, of interest. not only
1: not only is it the rank and file of journalists that we have to think about consider that back in the late 1940s early 1950s the cia was intimately involved in the press at the higher echelons mm-hmm. you look at henry Luce of time magazine yep. or you look at the uh, frank wisner and his uh, best friend uh, philip graham uh, who uh, was the owner of the of the washington post uh, washington post is a long time a, a veteran uh, publication in terms of its ties with the Central Intelligence uh, Agency that you know that exists uh, until this day, uh, but uh, you know it involves also the owners of the media. Oh. perhaps now more so than ever because you know back in the early 1980s. As Ben Bagdikian has pointed out in his book, the media monopoly—ninety percent of our media were controlled by uh, uh, fifty corporations. You know what we see here, read fifty corporations. Now it's a handful of corporations just four or five corporations—and so you have mm-hmm. um, that many fewer CEOs and, and boards of directors that are—you know—you could fit in a, in a small conference room that really do control pretty much everything that, that the broader public sees and
0: hears and reads well Jeff Jeff Bestos uh, I believe formerly head of Amazon but I think owns a, a, a huge chunk of Amazon still he owns the Washington Post he, he's not only got data on what most Americans read he's got data on, on what they buy uh, and how they shop as well this is one, right, yeah. one guy so yeah this this kind of con, um, configuration is really uh, Coming together in, in ways that, that we wouldn't even imagine a couple of years ago. I remember reading that one of those interviews with Graham, I think, from years ago. Um, and it was, he, was, he said it was cheaper, or the, no, he said that a CIA operative told him it was cheaper to get a journalist in Washington than it was a hooker. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah
1: so. I'm not sure if that's attributable to Wisner or Graham, but it's uh, it's, it's yeah, it's one of those
0: two. Second, I, yeah, yeah. I was, I think Graham Graham was saying it second hand, but um, but yeah. So they, it's well, basically, it's well known. There, there's a definite um, overlap there. But just to end up, you know, my personal view here is, you know, I there's no way I would be able to say what I say on CNN or Fox or the BBC, but uh, a network like RT, um, who have never censored me ever uh, in over a 100 segments I've done on that, that network, never been censored, never been told what to say, never been cut right? And they run a program on their documentary channel this week called The Covert CIA Experiments. Fascinating documentary, okay? And meanwhile, what's running in tandem on CNN is a thing about the 70s or the 60s. A look back at how the media covered the 70s or a look back at how the media covered the 60s in America. Lots of Charles Manson and et cetera, et cetera, and Gerald Ford and, and all the rest of it. So I've been accused of being uh, 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 on a propaganda Putin's propaganda outlet on RT and and I'm saying to myself the guy who made the film about the covert CIA uh, scientific experiments on Americans he the filmmaker I believe or one of the at least the producer is American okay so this isn't like an un-American thing to do a documentary on covert CIA experiments but yet they're calling it just because it's on RT it's un-American and I find this whole discussion very very twisted okay because cnn should be showing that documentary instead of showing us about charles manson's tattoos
1: absolutely it would be the american thing to do if we are really concerned about a transparent and accountable government
0: yeah and so that that's that's my two cents on i i i they, they said, well, you know, don't you think uh, going on RT and talking about these things is going to diminish uh, the power of your message? And I said, no, I said it's not because it's getting out to 80 million people. So it's not, there's nothing diminishing about it, really.
1: But the people who have a clue look to RT and Press TV and other foreign outlets for an idea of, of what Uh, our country is involved in in terms of our foreign policy overseas
0: yeah because you won't hear that on fox you won't hear that yeah you won't hear it on cnn which is precisely the point okay but um but thank you james i want to thank you for sticking with us on the overtime this has been a great discussion there's a couple of areas james that quite frankly even details of what we touched on we could delve into and do a whole segment just on specific areas of the discussion we had which was really a round table kind of uh all-around discussion about this this subject that we're talking about but thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it and also can you please uh just reiterate to our listeners where they can find your work uh what other what websites you normally publish on and how they can read more of your stuff
1: uh, my website is memoryholeblog dot com, and a lot of that material also appears over at globalresearch.ca. And um, that's more or less it. I also do a weekly uh, interview program on truth frequency radio, truthfrequencyradio dot com, uh, and that is on every Monday at noontime Eastern, or excuse me noontime Pacific, three o'clock Eastern
0: yeah truth frequency radio that's tfr very good uh network very good network lots of great shows on there so go check james out professor james tracy memory hole blog and we've got links to your blog on our show page right now if you want to go check out james's work james we hope to have you back again for another segment in the future it's been fantastic
1: great yeah patrick i really enjoyed it thanks for having me